Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up first. The Marshall Islands just said, why go to Washington and have another session when we haven't received anything from the U.S.? The Marshall Islands urges the U.S. to settle outstanding issues involving its legacy of nuclear bomb tests. Also, why our partners and friends cannot get along on this issue of total international importance. Pacific leaders stand in solidarity at the UN General Assembly, calling for more climate action. And later on, we check in on Papua New Guinea with the latest on the earthquake disaster response. There hasn't been a lot of relief effort that's been visible to the public. The United States and the Marshall Islands were to sit down this weekend to settle some aspects of the Compact of Free Association. This is the instrument under which Washington provides its former colony with aid and assistance. But the Marshall's government called the talks off. It says the U.S. first needs to settle outstanding issues concerning the legacy of the 67 nuclear bomb tests made between 1946 and 1958. It comes amid a backdrop of growing geopolitical tension in the Pacific. A correspondent in Majuro, Giff Johnson, says it's not about that. He spoke with Don Wiseman. So this was supposed to be the third round of formal negotiations between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands on uh, renewing certain provisions of the Compact of Free Association. And uh, at the last session, a couple months ago, the Marshall Islands submitted a proposal to the U.S. for for addressing the nuclear test legacy. They've been waiting for a response, and they didn't get one. They're saying, well, we have a delegation of 10 or so people. We're going to spend a lot of money, get on a plane and go to Washington for what? When the U.S. hasn't responded. We don't want to sit around and just sit there and wait for something. So their position on this is that the U.S. needs to respond to them formally in writing. Uh, just as they had submitted a proposal. Essentially, the effect of this is to really say that the words that Marshallese leaders have been saying for the last two or three years about the importance of addressing and solving the nuclear test legacy is not just a bunch of hot air, that it's a really important issue for people here. And they're not just going to keep going along with Washington uh, and not not address it. And unfortunately, it's just, you know, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's pretty much been brushed to the side. What is it specifically that the Marshall Islands has been asking the U.S. to do about the nuclear damage and the fallout, so to speak, from that? In the first compact of free association between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands established or set up a nuclear claims tribunal that was responsible for adjudicating all nuclear claims in the Marshall Islands. And that entity was set up in the 1980s and uh, late 1980s after the compact came into effect and uh, over about a 15-year period came up with adjudication of, of claims from the, the major affected atolls and a lot of uh, personal injury damages of over $3 billion. So this is one, at least one element that the Marshall Islands wants addressed. They're saying, well, look, we have 
the tribunal adjudicated these claims. It went through a process to get to how much we need to clean up islands, how much is due for compensation, how much for health care, and so on. And these are sitting on the table and waiting for, you know, the United States, which caused the problem, to support solution that can make this happen. And a big part of it is related to nuclear cleanups, the environment, health care for people, and so on. The, the geopolitical situation in the Pacific has changed considerably in recent months. To what extent does the Marshall Islands feel like it's in a position to play hardball here that it wasn't in perhaps, I don't know, a year ago? There's no question that the geopolitical environment has changed with the competition between the U.S. and China. At the same time, I think people out here really see that as a U.S., China, other people's issue. From their point of view, they're like, we're partners with the United States. We recognize that. And there's nobody here saying that they want to break off ties with the U.S. But what they're saying is it's time for the United States to deal with a black mark in an otherwise relatively good relationship. And the nuclear legacy has just been this long, outstanding issue that's waiting for people to come to the table and get it organized and resolved in a mutually agreeable way. And the the way the Speaker of the Parliament talked to me today about it, and he's one of the key people in the negotiating team, and he represents Rongelap, which is one of the most affected atolls here from the nuclear testing. He says, you know, if we can address these key issues for the Marshall Islands, we're ready to sign the compact tomorrow. But this is their line in the sand. There's no question about it. The nuclear legacy, they just feel this is the time. And if they're ever going to get some action on it, it's now. And even if you read and listen to what many members of the U.S. Congress, both Republican and Democrats, say, they're saying, take care of this problem. Let's solve it. Let's deal with it. The Marshall Islands is a valuable ally and friend, and it's time to just deal with this because it was not properly dealt with in the first compact, which was a Cold War era negotiation. You know, I mean, the Marshall Islands wasn't even a country, and it was negotiating with a superpower. And so that's how the agreement came out. And it's just, you know, hindsight, you can look at all the things that it didn't solve, but the big picture is they need to take some action. So the Marshall Islands just said, why go to Washington and have another session when we haven't received anything from the U.S. So they're waiting. Will they be in Washington for the other talks, the the Pacific Island talks with President Biden? Will uh, the marshals turn up for those? Yes. President David Kabua is already in the United States, and he was at the U.N. General Assembly earlier this week, gave a talk at the U.N. General Assembly, where he also reiterated the importance of dealing with the ongoing and lingering legacy of the nuclear testing. So this message has been being broadcast loud and clear for the last few years. There shouldn't be any surprise. And yes, uh, President Kabua is scheduled to be at the White House Pacific Islands Summit next week. 
Pacific leaders are showing solidarity at the UN General Assembly in New York, calling for urgent and ambitious climate action. Kuroi Hawkins reports. The President of the Federated States of Micronesia, David Manuelo, urged the US and China to resume communication and cooperation for the sake of climate change. Mr. Panuelo says as the world's superpowers, they have the biggest say on emissions targets. Micronesia cannot understand why our partners and friends cannot get along on this issue of total international importance. But one way to get attention and action is to explicitly call out your closest friends and allies by name instead of talking around substance. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape told world leaders that climate change should be at the top of humanity's priorities. Marape said Papua New Guinea's rainforest absorbs more carbon than the country emits and it's one of the few carbon-positive states in the world. He expressed frustration at his country's failed attempts to secure climate funding. It is however disheartening to note that despite our proactive national efforts to implement our Paris Agreement commitment, we seem to be getting the raw end of the deal all the time. We have done our part, including our submissions to the Green Climate Fund. We have not, however, lost all hope, despite the fact that we are almost forgotten in the Glasgow conversations. The president of Kiribati, Mr. Tanes Mamau, told the UN General Assembly there's a lack of solidarity and this is affecting efforts to tackle carbon emissions. The lack of solidarity, even through multilateralism, continues to be the stumbling block to address the global change emergency. The targets that have been agreed and set under the Paris Agreement, including the financial pledges, continue to remain out of reach. There are 12 Pacific countries in New York for the 77th UN General Assembly meeting. The bulk of them will address the general debate tomorrow, with Australia scheduled to round out contributions from Oceania on Saturday local time. There are also dozens of bilateral and multilateral meetings taking place on the fringes of the UN General Assembly. It's been nearly two weeks since a major 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit Papua New Guinea's highlands and northern coastal provinces. But still, not a lot is known about the impact. The death toll has reached 12, but it's still expected to rise. Hundreds were also injured, while many traditional houses and gardens were wrecked by landslides. Our correspondent Scott Whitey has been home in Leh, in Morobe province. He says this week one of his biggest concerns is that telecommunications have been badly disrupted with provider PNG Dataco blaming this on quake damage. He spoke with Don Wiseman beginning with an update on the quake impact. From what I know in Leh, there's been several helicopter trips by the disaster uh, and emergency unit of the Morbi province into places that have been affected. And that's from very brief discussion that I had with the head of disaster operations, Charlie Masangi. He was on his way to Salamoa where uh, several houses have been destroyed. Since then, I haven't been able to contact him. And, and I, I believe there are ongoing uh, assessment efforts. Let's see what happens in the weeks after that because they're monitoring you know, things like damage to garden, migration of people, damage water sources and looking to allocate uh, resources. For this particular earthquake, there hasn't been a lot of relief effort that's been visible 
to the public and and it's been really difficult trying to get hold of authorities to actually comment on the issue. The impression I have with the likes of Red Cross is they're waiting for this national assessment to be made public and there have been significant communication issues as you're well aware of uh, over the last few days presumably as a result of the earthquake. Um, yes, Don, that's still a trend with the other earthquakes and, and disasters that we've had. Uh, on the one side, you've got uh, donor agencies that are across the UN waiting for government action. Uh, I guess it's a, it's a problem with the existing system and the arrangements and the actual availability of resources that's present in order to connect the dots, basically. So that's the problems that we've had over the years, and it Obviously, for this one, it hasn't been solved yet, even though there's been a restructure and a reallocation of ministries uh, and, and a restructure of the disaster, whole disaster landscape. So that, I think, is bound to continue for a few more weeks. And I'm not too sure whether there'll be this assessment presented and, and it might come very late. And by then, people will have already recovered from this quake. What we're getting is information directly from the villages, and they're telling us what's happening. But, you know, the villages are very resilient. They will bounce back as soon as things happen, and they're quite used to government help not getting on time. And that's the sad thing about it. And the situation, as we understand it, is what it was a week ago in terms of the figures, that there had been 12 deaths and hundreds of people had been injured in serious or minor ways, and a lot of housing destroyed, but traditional housing, so could be rebuilt quite quickly. Yes. So the figures haven't changed, and I'm, I'm really thankful that it has remained the same. I've also checked the villages again just to make sure there are bodies that have been recovered, but so far nothing nothing has happened. Usually they will send a text message when they get to a network coverage area, but then that's been complicated by the network problems that we've had over the last two weeks. We had heard that there are significant breaks in the submarine cable. Y- yes, it, it's the biggest disruption that we've had in many years. So Data Code, the government entity that manages the fiber cable, says that uh, it might take at least two months to have that fixed. And it's given a list of areas that need to be fixed, and they're all offshore. The fiber cable terminates in Medang, and Medang's seen some of the biggest destruction in terms of road damage, villages being affected by it, and at least two deaths reported out of Medang. So it's going to take uh, a while before we get our network back in order. The situation is that you can't upload you know, anything greater than 10 megabytes, 10 to 40 megabytes. It takes a long time. We can't book tickets online. There are periods where the FPOS machines in the shops go out, so you, you can't really use the FPOS, so it, it, it's problematic ongoing. Statistics from OECD show that literacy in New Zealand is at an all-time low, with less than 12% of adults passing basic literacy standards. Determined to turn those stats around is South Auckland local and former teacher David Riley. He's established the Oceania Literacy Trust to try and inspire Kiwi kids to read more. Talofa lover David, tell us a bit more about yourself and the trust. Talofa lover Susanna, thank you for this this opportunity. Um, So my name is David and I grew up in... Mangere in South Auckland, and I was a teacher um, at a school called Tangaro College in Otara. 
and um, teaching English and um, drama. And over the years, um, I always felt for the young people who, who struggled with literacy there. Um, not all um, young people. There's a lot of great readers and writers um, at the school where I taught, but there were also some young people who struggled with those, you know, in those areas. And so I always felt for them. And um, so I started writing books to try and um, meet those those needs and help them. And also last year, um, my wife and I and a group of other people, we, we started a trust called um, Oceania Literacy Trust to do projects to try and um, boost literacy for, for young people who struggle with it. Why did you feel it was important to establish the Oceania Literacy Trust? Because our, our you know, a lot of our young people are, um, you know, the, the tail, you know, they call it the long tail of um, lack of achievement in education. And it hasn't changed, you know, and I taught for 23 years. And when I started, they were saying it. And when I finished, they're still saying it, you know, especially for a lot of our Pacific and Maori young people. And so... You know, we just felt like, okay, um, you know, there's a whole group of us who who love um, literacy and reading and writing, and um, you know, maybe we can do something to, you know, to help um, our community. You know, that's what lots of people do in in, um, in Aotearoa. You know, they use the things that they love and our, our strengths to help. You know, whatever needs there are. So for our, for myself and my wife and um, Richie Missile and uh, Linda Vangana and Vicky Fowler and Roger Mortimer. Um, that, that's our trust. We all have a heart for literacy for our, our kids, so that's why we wanted to do that. So what is it about reading and writing that's still worth teaching despite everything becoming almost digitised? Yeah, um, well, in terms of writing, there's, um, writing experts have shown that there's a connection between um, actual handwriting and understanding um, reading because you are shaping the letters, you're shaping the words, and that is helping you to physicalize the words as so that they become part of you. So there's a, a real strong link um, between handwriting and reading comprehension, and that's something that um, in New Zealand education for the last, I think it's around 30 years, there was a report that came out that said that uh, New Zealand education had stopped focus, focusing on handwriting and spelling and had moved towards um, content, focusing on content to the detriment of, you know, handwriting and, and spelling. And if, and if you see a lot of our kids writing these days, um, a lot of children really struggle with handwriting and spelling as well. And that is correlated to a struggle with reading. So the two go together. And there's always a place for reading. And there's always a place for reading um Things that are not digital, um, you know. One time, I saw I saw an elderly man at the airport sitting in the corner waiting for his his um, plane, and he had to sit in the corner because that's where the the charger was, so he could read his phone, you know. And I felt so sorry for him; it looked really uncomfortable. And I was thinking, you know, with a book, you don't have to do that. You know, you can sit anywhere, and you can take it with you. It doesn't run out of gas or power. And you know, there's something about the feel. And you know, being the whole the whole sense and body is involved in um, reading and writing, and so you know, I, I think those things are very important because they help us to stay human as well. You know, like we we're not just a head. You know, we're not just a head. We're a whole body. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's a big part of it.
So what's been the highlight for you since establishing the Oceania Literacy Trust? Um, well, we, we, um, we've only just done our first three projects this year. So two of them are still going. One of them is finished. So that one will be the highlight. It's called, um, that project was called Pikiake. And that was a reading uh, skills project, which was run by uh, my wife, um, Lawango Debbie Riley. And she ran that program with around 10 children um, throughout through the first um, two terms of this year. And their reading levels have just gone like way above. Their spelling levels have improved. And just their overall confidence, you know, towards school, towards education, and just towards themselves has just really improved. And, yeah, that has been a – that's what we knew would happen. You know, we knew for sure, you know, if our kids feel like they're clever and if they can understand what's going on and if they can read well, then, they, you know, that will boost their self-esteem and show them that, you know, that it will just open up their, their hearts to, you know, to what they can be, you know, because they're more than – you know, a lot of times our kids are way more than they think they are. But uh, you know they're they you know they're they're battling through they're battling through you know the years of you know of lack of success and at school and so these that's that's why it's such a highlight that program. Love it, David. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. So fast way for Manuele Vayaso.